Luke chapter 8 is where I'd invite you to open up your Bible. And TV does this to us incessantly, and the DVR helps us to counteract it. But so many times on a TV show, right before a commercial, they will tell you what's coming up next. And then after the commercial, they'll show you what you just watched. And for those of you who have an efficient mindset, that drives you insane. Because you're like, I just watched that. And actually DVR through the commercials, so I literally just watched that. That repetition, that sort of second coat of paint, people know what they're doing with that. They're not just filling time. They're sort of, you know, reviewing. Here's what happened last week is I just ran out of time. I didn't, we stayed in the text, which is a really good biblical way to look at the Bible, stay with actual storms before getting to metaphorical storms. We looked at the characters that that Jesus interacted with before getting it to our life, but we never got to our life. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to take the first couple of minutes to just finish out last week. So Luke chapter 8 in the early 30s through 39 is kind of where we are. And remember, Jesus went from North Shore of Tahoe over to Nevada, right, to the land of the Gerasenes. By doing so, he was crossing a border. He was in Gentile country. He shows up. There's a man who is demon-possessed. He's, he's possessed by a legion of demons, and he overpowers the demons, sends them into the pigs. They rush down to their death. And here was the big takeaway from last week, if you missed it. Jesus releases the captive by disarming the demon. Jot this passage down if you haven't in your notes last week, but Colossians 2.15 says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our strong man. Jesus is one who fights our battles. In this, what we look at was just three different responses to Jesus. The demons show this sobering reality. It's possible to know who Jesus is without loving him, right? Their Christology is great. They know he's the son of the most high God, but they don't love him. They also submit to him without really obeying him. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because he is. And so the demons show that they, it's sort of a foretaste of what's going to happen, willingly or unwillingly, lovingly or unlovingly, obediently or simply submissively because there's a greater power, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. And the demons did just that without really obeying him. How about the citizens of the town? The citizens of the town show that fear of change or fear of the unknown, we don't really know why they did it, but fear of change or fear of the unknown can usher God right out of your life. They asked Jesus relatively politely for sort of Eastern standards, right? They didn't run him to his death. They didn't throw rocks at him. They didn't take him to a high cliff and want to shove him over. They essentially politely asked Jesus to leave, and he obliged. So fear of change, fear of the unknown powers around you can lead you to usher God out of your life. Only the man who is demon-possessed, who, as we start the story, is the worst off in the story, worse than you can imagine, under demonic oppression, receives what Jesus has to offer, and he shows his great love for him out of his obedience. Remember, he wants to go with Jesus. What does Jesus tell him? Stay. Stay in this godless town, literally, because they just ushered God out. Stay and bear witness to what, to what I've, I've, I've done for you. Declare the great things of God. You show your love for Jesus by obeying. It wasn't about what the man wanted, where he felt most fulfilled in ministry. He followed the, the voice of Jesus. That's them. Now let's take a look at us. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 18. I know I just told you to turn to Luke 8. You can leave a finger there if you want. Luke's pretty easy to find. So is Psalm. Go to Psalm 18. What I want to do is this. Um, I want to sort of take very quickly, if you're facing demons, 
Let me just say this. If you've received Jesus' lordship, which is what this demonic, formerly possessed man did, then know these truths and heed this warning. Psalm 18 is where you should turn. I want to just give you three things. Number one is this. Jesus is your fort and your shield. What do you do in a fort? You run back. You retreat back to it when you're under attack. That's your safe place. You don't just camp out there and stay there nonstop, but that's the place you, you run back to. But he's also your shield as you move forward in life. Run to and rest in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. With Jesus, you are safe and secure. Genuinely with Jesus, you're invincible to what this world can throw at you. So live in the reality that the victory has been won. Look at Psalm 18.1. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's Old Testament. Jesus shows up on the scene, proves to be that. Not only for this demonic, but for us today. So number one, one is that Jesus is your fort and shield. Are you facing demons? Remember that Jesus is your fort and shield. Number two is this. Get in close fellowship with other Christians or stay in close fellowship with other Christians. If you're already in close fellowship with other Christians, stay there. Remain faithful in season and out. If you aren't, get into close fellowship with other Christians. Let me make a quick qualifier. When I say other Christians, I'm not saying Christians in name only. We're a Christian nation to many people around the world. Did you know this? Those of you who read your Bible and know what it means to be a Christ follower would say, ah, not so much. There's a lot about America that is not Christian. In fact, I would say the overwhelming majority of that. So when I say get with Christians, I don't just mean in name only. Here's who I'm talking about. It's those who hear and do the word of God. Really simply. It's those who hear and receive and do the word of God. They humbly and submissively and seriously follow God's direction for their life. That's their guiding force. That's what they check in every day. It's not an accident that Satan tempts Jesus when he's isolated. Church, hear me that God puts you in a family, in a fellowship, not out of luxury. Oh, it'd be nice to get some good Christian friends in my life but out of necessity. You are not here today because you need a few more social outings. You're not here as a luxury. God put you in a family out of sheer necessity. It's your vitality. Your life is at stake. Alone, you are more vulnerable to spiritual attack, period. Number three is this. Know where your help comes from. Jesus is your fort and shield. Get or stay in close fellowship with Christians who hear and do the word of God. Number three is this. Know where your help comes from. Yes, you have the armor of God. Put it on. Yes, you have the sword of truth. Use it. But in humility, remember that any authority you have in Jesus' name is delegated authority. We're going to look at this shortly uh, in a couple of chapters where Jesus sends out and the disciples now are casting out demons just the way Jesus just did. What happens is man in his pride begins to think that he or she is all that. And in the name of Jesus, they're, they're slinging authority left and right, not recognizing, not remembering. Uh, it's a delegated authority. It's really Jesus' authority. That's where your help comes from. Look, look back at Psalm 18. Go down to verse 6. This is what you're up against with demonic forces. 
overlays Psalm 18 with this passage about the demonic in the Gerasenes land. It's really powerful. It says this, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. Now skip down to verse 17. He received me, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. You are not a chore to your loving Heavenly Father. There is a strong enemy that you need rescuing from. I said this last week that Satan and his demons hate you. They are in no way your friend. The results of demonic forces are seen in this man. Isolation, self, it says he was cutting in Mark. Um, self-mutilation, harm, um, isolation from, from other people, and, uh, and being terrorized. That's if you're facing demons. How about if you're facing unbelieving neighbors? What did the man do? He said, let me go with you, Jesus. Jesus said, no, stay here. Your call is to stay in your hometown. Sometimes the hardest people to witness to are your own friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. Why? Because you see them every day, and they see you every day. There's no great, you know, bright moment where you just lay out the gospel, you lay out some great truth, and they all respond. So if you're facing unbelieving neighbors, let me just give you a couple thoughts. Like the man, give glory to God by testifying to all that he has done for you and by staying with those that God has called you to be in relationship with. If you live in a court, your court is your mission field. If you work in a school, your school's your mission field. If you're in a family, your family is your mission field. How can you love and serve your neighbor as yourself? So on the one hand, I would say this. Be a witness. Share. This is a great missions passage. Open your mouth. Faith comes by hearing. Now, in equal tension with that, let me say this also. Don't trample the gift of choice that God gives to human beings. Respect the process and respect the story that every one of your coworkers, fellow students, roommates, whoever, family members, friends is living. And you're not in control of it. So open your mouth and be bold. Declare what God's done for you and respect the uh, choice that God's given to every single human being. So make your case, give your arguments, live a life of light and be ready with good answers. Do all those things. And if you are asked to stop, stop. If you're asked to leave, oblige. Jesus modeled that. He's going to send people out. He's going to say, if they don't receive it, move on. Don't sit and bludgeon people into the kingdom. Number three is this. What if you are the one saved from the eternal torment of hell like the man? Rejoice and report. Again, salvation comes with a responsibility to, we love this word around here, share. Share has far more to do than just evangelism, but evangelism is what this passage is talking about. That's what that man was to do. Jesus said, go on and and pass on what God's done uh, for you. Now, lest you don't see yourself, average everyday Christian, in this story, let me remind you of a few things. Christian, you are clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness, where once you were naked in the shame of your sin. Remember this guy had a hard time keeping his clothes on? You are shackle-free, where once you were claimed, you were chained in lust and in pride and in selfishness and on and on. You are sitting in your right mind today where once you were darkened in your thinking, according to Romans 1. You are sitting at the feet of Jesus instead of living in a cemetery amongst dead people. 
Friends, this demonic who's been healed, rescued, freed by Jesus disarming the demon is our Christian story. Never lose the wonder of being out of the grip of Satan and instead held firm in the hand of your Savior. Hebrews chapter 3.13 says this, but exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, if there's ever a today, do it. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I gave a hug to a gentleman sitting in this room right now. He had tears in his eyes, thrilled to be at church today. This is a guy who hasn't lost the wonder of being out of the grip of Satan and his demons and in the firm grip of his Savior. All right. We're now moving back to California. We're leaving Nevada. We're leaving the Gentile land back to where Jesus is known. And you'll see it in the text that he's welcomed um, back into Jewish territory. We're in Luke 8, uh, starting in verse 40. Before I read right there, we were recount a story. We hadn't been living in our house too long. We live about a half mile from here. And our dog got out, and it was a Tuesday night, because there was Bible study time, and we legitimately lost our dog. It had been an hour or more at that point, maybe even several. We were trying to leave for a vacation that night after Bible study. We were driving up to our, uh, our family's house in Sacramento area. And so the whole family is scrambling around looking for the dog as soon as Bible study let out. So, uh, you know, we're, we're asking every parent, um, you know, we're just letting them know, we're, we're pleading for help. Our dog's lost. Would you mind helping us look for our dog? So we're canvassing the neighborhood, doing everything we can to do this. Now, you who aren't animal people, you're like, nut job. Why would you do that? Let the dog go. It's cheaper, right? I mean, no vet fees. He's not going to poop places you don't want to poop. You don't have to feed him. I mean, just let the dog go. It was meant to be. If you let it go and it's true love, he'll come back right that's what you're thinking you dog people you're with me on this right when you lose a dog wouldn't you do anything i mean like i you know there are introverts in our family there are extroverts you can guess which one i am uh, there were some introverts that turned into extroverts that night you know why because their dog was missing they'd go up to a stranger and say have you seen a dog that looks like this this and this they were just walking around asking anyone and everyone if they've seen a dog and it was amazing because um, our, our scope multiplied hugely because tons of people from our church got in their cars and they're driving around looking for our dog. Now, I'm, a, I'm still, there's a little bit of unresolved bitterness here. It's a little bit of, uh, I don't know. In our court, three houses away, our neighbors saw this dog wandering around, took him in. Our dog was in the lap of luxury, being treated Whoa, this wonderful dog. And just caring for this wonderful dog. These were dog people. And they still live there. We still live there. And we finally discovered that our dog was safe and sound. And, um, and I'm, I, I remember asking, I remember saying, wow, we were, we were like shouting for our dog. For hours! <laughs> I mean, there were tears in our kids' eyes. We thought this dog was gone. You didn't hear us calling for our dog? No. And to this day, this guy says what an amazing creature our dog is. I mean, as he was giving our dog back, it was a little bit like, that's my dog. Give me the dog back. Let go of the dog. And so to this day, I, still, if, if I'm out there with like, so there's still a little bit, like, like I said, I'm working that through with the Lord, but I, yeah. Anyway, we'll let it go. Here's where I'm going with that. That's a dog. 
I'm a dog person, but that's a dog. What about when your spouse is lost? What about when your faith is missing? What about when a friend is gone somewhere? Like, like I want you to get in your headspace. If, if we would do that for a dog, and dog people, you're, you're with me. What would we go? Like, like, how far would we go and how desperate would we become to, to, to bring that person we care about, uh, care about back into the fold? Here's sort of an opening question for you. In desperation, you can fill this, this out for yourself. In desperation, I reach out to blank. In desperation, I reach out to blank. Could be a person. You know you're sitting in church. The right answer is Jesus, right? Don't just fill out Jesus too quickly. In desperation, I reach out to. It could be work. Could be a person. Could be a place. Could be a thing. Could be something nebulous, like it's not tangible, but you isolate. You just go into to isolation. And don't write what you would like to say or what you tend to tell other people. Your actions, my actions scream our theology. Whether we want to or not, our theology is leaking out all over the place. So what is it that you go to? Who do you reach out to in your desperation? That's just sort of an overarching question as we start. If you're fairly new with us um, or haven't been here in a while, we're still in the Gospel of Luke. We've called it the good doctor. And we're not calling it just because Jesus is truly the great physician, which we're going to see in today's text, but also because he's on this good mission to save souls. It's not just about physical healing. It's not just about uh, life on, on, uh, in, our, in our time, in our bodies. Chapter 8 closes with two very different people reaching out to Jesus in their desperation. As we start to read the text, I want to just have you sort of keep these things in your mind. Look at how Jesus proves powerful to desperate people. Jesus proves powerful to desperate people. That's a good word today. Jesus maintains his search for faith in people. Think of all the things he could be asking people. He keeps asking disciples on a boat, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? And if there's a command, it's not go wash in the temple, get to church more, lead some Bible studies. It's trust me. Where is your faith? And trust me, his search for faith is, is intact. And finally, pay attention to the roller coaster that Luke takes us on in these short few verses. The highs and lows of emotion in these encounters. It actually reads a lot like my own life of faith. That there are ups and there are downs. That there's absolute confusion and then absolute certainty. And all kinds of interruptions in between there. All right, starting in verse 40, follow along with me so you know I'm not making it up. Here we go. Now, when Jesus returned, this is back over the Sea of Galilee, crossing a border to Jewish land. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Let me pause. 
You couldn't get two more different kinds of people reaching out to Jesus. Jairus is named. We know his name. He's known. He's respected. He has a title. He's prominent. He leads a staff, as we're going to see in a few verses. This woman, we don't even have her name. She's not known. She has no title except the title of unclean. Perhaps the reason she's slinking around is her blood would have made her unclean. To be in a crowd like that and not be shouting unclean, which would be the title that Levitical law told her to do, um, was, was, was law-breaking. There's no entourage. There's no respect with this woman. And yet both of them find themselves in the same place doing the same exact thing, and that is reaching out to Jesus. Desperation does this. When we are desperate, it sort of levels the playing field across all these lines and ways that we peg each other up, down, over, lines drawn, and whatever. Desperation levels the playing field. At our core, we are all human. We are image bearers of God who are stained with sin, both by choice and by nature that was passed down from our first parents. And we live in a cursed and fallen world. That creates desperation, doesn't it? There are seasons where you're not desperate. We just saying, God, I'm desperate for you. On one level, that's just true all the time. But there are days it feels more true than other days. On these days, for these two people, it felt very, very true. Their stories intersected, in fact, because they both hinge on the presence and power of Jesus. What on earth is this, is this guy and this woman having to do? We don't really know at all. But we know in this encounter that Luke says, these are events that happen right on top of each other. Their lives intersected because of the presence and power of Jesus. You know, that's a good description for the church. Our stories here, the friendships and relationships that form here, um, is because we are a gathering of desperate people drawn together as we reach out to Jesus. And his power and presence forms a new community. So our stories here have intersected because of that very thing, that desperation. I mean, it really is a beautiful picture of what the church is, the family of God is. So let me first draw our attention to the desperate dad. Again, don't just read ahead. Don't know where the story goes. Place yourself here. Dads, moms, what would you do for a dying child? What lengths would you go to for a dying child? Give me about one minute of your life, um, and I want to show you a bit of a trailer that will kind of get our heads there. So Jairus is a desperate dad doing desperate things to save his kid. I mean, this is just what parents do. Uh, Probably like John Q. So John Q tries all that he can think of before turning to a hostage standoff. I don't recommend that, by the way. But you see in that short trailer the things he tried to do. Every single thing he could think of. And then it led to this place of utter desperation. No doubt that Jairus did the same thing. No doubt that Jairus was at a point of just trying every single thing that was in his power to do. And in his desperation, he reaches out to Jesus. In fact, he implores him. The wording is that there's urgent pleading. There's exhortation that borders on begging. In a shame-honor culture, for a person of high title to be begging shows the desperation that this man is at. We know from Scripture already that synagogue leaders weren't really palling around with Jesus at the time. 
So to publicly humiliate himself uh, shows that he was sort of way past the point of politeness, way past the point of preserving appearances and good names. And in faith, Jairus reaches out to Jesus. Time is of the essence. It's crowded. Jesus just gave the okay. I'll go with you. And then boom, there's an interruption. So from desperate dad, let me take you to the next person we see in this text, which is the exhausted bleeder. She's hemorrhaging for 12 years. She has spent a fortune to no avail. She's still in the same place. She sort of sneaks up on Jesus, doesn't want to cause a scene, reaches out, touches in faith, and receives instant healing. Place yourself with this woman. What a relief. That's it. It's over. I can feel it. The bleeding stopped. What experts have been trying to change but couldn't, Jesus did in an instant. And it was freely given. Not so fast. Jesus presses the issue of who's pressing in on him. He doesn't let her go. Look at verse 44. Immediately her discharge of blood ceased. There's the miracle. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Peter's the spokesman. He's always the one that seems to speak up. Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and you are pre- and, and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Answer me this. Was the woman content to get the healing and slip away? Absolutely. She didn't want to cause a scene. She didn't want drama. She didn't want to be known even. She did her best to hide. Jesus wasn't content. Why is it that Jesus wouldn't just let her go? She got the healing. She didn't want the attention. Why not just let her go? I think this. Three thoughts. One is this. He wants a public confession from her. Not to shame her, but to solidify the truth in her. And get this. It's not for him. He doesn't need the adulation. In fact, he actually shuns it at this point. He's trying to keep things undercover. So it's not for his sake. It's for her sake that he asks for a public confession, which he gets from her. She came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all people. Hear me, church. Jesus still wants a public confession from us. Well, I don't really like it. I'm introverted. I like to not cause a scene. Too bad. Too bad. It's not about you. Actually, it is about you. It's not about Jesus needing it. It's not about the pastor wanting it. It's not about us to sort of check something off. This is for you. This is for your own good. Romans 10.9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. There's something very powerful about a public confession, isn't there? Many of you have been baptized. You didn't get baptized because you love swimming. You didn't get baptized because you just love a good crowd and looking wet in front of people. That's not why you got baptized. You got baptized because Jesus commands it. Repent and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Read the book of Acts. Our baptism class is just telling you, Jesus is telling you to publicly confess whose team you're on. That's it. This is for you. 
Jesus still wants a public confession to show outwardly what's true inwardly. Number two is this. Jesus did not come to be a miracle dispensing machine, but to encounter people. We saw from last week, it's not just about trying to do as much good for as many healings and demonics as possible. That wasn't his main mission. He came to encounter people. He didn't let her slip away because there was some more healing and wholeness to get from Jesus than just the stopping of blood. There was health and wholeness that he wanted. There's more than the physical. Hear me. This is always the case. People in desperation come because their kid is sick. People in desperation come because they're financially strapped. People come in desperation because their marriage is on the rocks or because they're having a personal crisis. There's always more than the physical healing. There's always more than this little sort of small thing in the immediate that that we tend to see. Finally is this. He, He stops her because he wanted to speak to her. Quite simply, he wanted to have a conversation with her. And what he says is so incredibly moving. Three words that just jump off the page. Daughter. Daughter. I mean, right away he speaks to who she is. She's a daughter. Maybe she forgot. Daughter says to her this. You too are worth a desperate dad doing anything to chase after and be saved. I mean, that's really the story of what Jesus is here to give report to. Twelve-year-old girls are cute and young, and everyone rallies and says that's a life worth saving. Women who've been bleeding for 12 years tend to be forgotten and overlooked. Jesus didn't overlook. Daughter, he says to her, you are are worthy of being cherished and loved. Then he says this, your faith has made you well. He points to her faith. He takes her beyond physical realities to deeper spiritual ones. This is what Jesus does. He instructs her that it wasn't magic, but trust in the ultimate doctor that cured her. He's stating very, very clearly, it's your faith that, that, that healed you. It's not the day of the week. It's not the location. Don't people still get really confused on location and geography? I've got to get somewhere to get close to Jesus. Stop it. That's not biblical. It's not geography or day of the week. Your faith in the good doctor is what healed you. Finally, he says, go in peace. He bids her peace. Not just peace in your body, But your whole personhood is being integrated. Again, I think that word daughter washing over her must have been incredible. Go now and live, not just physically in peace, but go in the peace of God. Daughter, don't go striving after experts anymore. Don't go chasing after, that's not where your hope is. I see you, you are known, be at peace. Man, we'd all love it if the story just sort of wrapped up there. And then here's what comes sort of shattering in to that little serene scene. It's the report of this. It's too late, Jairus. Your daughter is dead. Now again, stop reading ahead in your mind and see if you can put yourself in the place of the father for a minute. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. I don't know what the journey was like for this man from that point to this little interruption to his house. We don't know how far it was. We don't know exactly what it was. But can't you imagine mind racing, heart pounding? I mean, that's what's going on in me. If this guy is half human, that's what's going on in him too. We get it because we're parents. 
Let me say this, that much of the life of faith is learning to trust God's timing for life's events. Much of the difficulty of the journey of faith is learning to trust God's timing in life's events. You ever doubt God's timing? Maybe you're struggling with it right now. What would you be thinking? Where would you go in grief? Let me give you a couple of things that this is just human nature. These are, these are the ways that we tend to go. Maybe you're thinking this. It seems that this delay has cost this girl's chance at survival. We're not entirely sure how long that encounter was with the woman, but maybe the delay cost her chance of survival. A lot of times people get stuck in sort of either-or mentality. Either God can heal my daughter or he can heal her. Maybe you immediately go to this in your mind. Unfair. Unfair, Jesus. In the panic of grief, we stand in the place of judge, even over God. Maybe this is the internal dialogue. You said you'd help. You promised me. All of a sudden, what happens is we can skew the facts. We can put words in the mouths of others. We can put feet into our own mouth. Maybe this is where your brain goes. How could you pick that woman over my daughter? We begin to compare. We begin to accuse God at the injustice. Again, it's either-or mentality. One more. Maybe it's this. She didn't even ask. She just interrupted. I had the courtesy come and beg and plead and implore you. And then you agreed. And she just came up and just interrupted the whole thing. People can get nasty with each other, can't they? Name-calling, belittling others to build their case. In all of these, let me just say this. It's amazing how quickly our suffering and fear of loss turns on God and turns on fellow sufferers. All the charity and mercy and patience and long-suffering can go flying out the window. Here's a question I want you to wrestle with in your community group this week. It's this. Do you know yourself well enough to guard against sinning in the midst midst of your grief? It's quite possible on that list, one of you go, that's mine. That's where I go. That's good. That's knowing yourself to guard against that. We all have ruts that we fall into. God wants to grow us through our pain and not just keep repeating the same patterns in our pain. Here's a deadly pattern. Anything bad that happens, I don't want to go back and think about it. Isn't that sometimes what keeps us in our rut? Let me read on. Verse 52. And all were weeping and mourning for her. They arrive at the house. But he, Jesus, said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, you think? But he charged them not, he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Uh, Let me just look really quickly at death and Jesus. We already saw from another passage um, that death is much like, our bodies are much like a wetsuit, right? They, they, uh, they're, they're worn for a season, they weather, they fade, they break down. Eventually you're going to take off your wetsuit. This thing that we care for and tend to, rightfully so, is breaking down and eventually will go away like, like, like a wetsuit. Today Jesus envisions death like a nap. The girl was, in fact, dead, and the girl was, in fact, sleeping. How can this be? 
It all depends on your vantage point. So these are professional mourners who knew a, a dead body when they saw one. I've worked with a lot of hospice workers. Hospice workers have an incredible knack for saying, we're probably down to 16 to 20 hours. What? How, how can you know that? Their life is spent around people passing from this life to the next. They just know. These professional mourners, they knew that she was dead. That's why the, the, the laughter sort of burst out, like, mm, this guy's about to get schooled because she's dead. They were right, and yet not. That's the human perspective. Aren't you glad Jesus has a different perspective than a human one? I am. From Jesus' perspective, she's napping. She's asleep, no question, but she can wake up. Jesus doesn't fear death, that ultimate and final enemy. Why? Because he's Lord. He's in charge. For Jesus, it's no more than waking her from sleep. As in the creation count in Genesis, the voice of God is powerful and effective to breathe life into inanimate things and bring back to life that which was dead. And so her spirit comes back. And just as an assurance, I love that Luke includes this. He's a doctor. He'd probably notice these things. But just as an assurance, he has her eat. There's something really powerful about that. A, we know it wasn't just sort of a spirit that formed in front of her. Parents, doesn't that put you at ease once your kids are eating? Yeah, that, that girl can put it away and here she is eating. Like she feels comfortable enough. She's back. She's getting something to eat. Before I close, let me look at the woman's faith and, and Jairus's faith. The woman's faith was timid and private. She would have preferred to keep it that way. Jesus led her to the uncomfortable place of public confession. She had faith, clearly. She was saved. But he pushes her. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Jesus leads her to a place of discomfort. How about Jairus's faith? Jairus's faith was plenty bold. That wasn't the problem. But Jesus led him to completely trust in him and let go of control. That's where some of you are. At each step of the way, the messengers come and, and give a report. And Jesus says, hey, look at me. Trust me. He says this. He says, don't fear. Trust me. Right at that point, didn't Jairus have a decision to make? Trust my staff? They've been faithful staff. They give faithful messages. Do I trust my staff or do I trust Jesus right now? He gets there. The family's weeping. They say she's dead. Jesus says this. Don't weep. Trust me. Again, there's another juncture right there. Call the whole thing off and say, just go. He, he keeps going forward. And then when the mockers arise and those in his inner circle begin to laugh, Jesus says, come in with me. He takes the parents in with him. And trust me, at each step of the way, in following Jesus, there are these moments, these forks in the road. At each step of the way, Jairus said yes to Jesus and kept following. It's not a one-time decision. He kept saying yes. He kept not trusting the other voices and messengers in his life. Those closest to him. And where did it lead? It led to a miraculous reconciliation, redemptive picture of him and his daughter. I close with these thoughts. The problem of evil is a persistent pain in the life of believers and non-believers alike. Luke gives us a look into the pain and harshness of the East nearly 2,000 years ago, and doesn't it look an awful lot like ours? 
Here's what's really incredible. Following Jesus doesn't shield people from pain. Hear me. Following Jesus does not shield you from pain. In fact, Jesus, the Word of God, led his followers into a terrifying storm, Luke chapter 8, into a bizarre demonic encounter, Luke chapter 8, into a corpse, Luke chapter 8. It's just one chapter of the Bible. Following Jesus leads you to some bizarre places, difficult places. Jesus is teaching them and us how to cope and carry on the good work in the midst of pain. If you're here this morning and you say, that's really hard, I agree with you. I think that's really, really hard. It's difficult. That's why we come back week after week desperate. Look what G.K. Chesterton said in a book called What's Wrong with the World. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. For many, your pain and desperation keep you from ever reaching out to Jesus. For others, it is precisely these same things that cause you to reach out to Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that amazing to, 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 to witness? Friends, family, people in the same family growing up, a bomb goes off and one says, that's the very reason I could never run to God. The other one says, There's, that's the very thing that caused me to reach out and finally look to God. The title this morning is not, in your desperation, reach out to Jesus, as if that was the only time you should reach out to Jesus. The title is, reach out to Jesus in your desperation, as in, in your desperation and your elation, in your boredom and your beauty, in the confusion and the clarity. Is there ever a bad time to reach out to Jesus? I haven't found one. Let me just say this. If you are here and you are desperate, I'm so glad that you found your way into church this morning. Even if you've been coming a long time, that you found yourself in church this morning. And let me say this. Don't harden your heart in this hour to what Jesus might be leading you into that which is difficult and scary and bizarre and unknown and absolutely will rock your world. But if you could just hear his voice saying, just trust me. Don't listen to them. Trust me. Don't weep. Trust me. I've conquered. I'm more powerful than that. You're leaning on worldly wisdom. Trust me. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are trustworthy I thank you that you prove yourself trustworthy to us over and over. Would you give us eyes, even today, even in this moment, to see what you're doing and how to follow. Amen.